listening to a Garden City Chapel podcast by Dr. Robert Shaw. For a complete archive of podcasts, visit our website at www.gardencitychapel.com. I'd like you to open your Bibles to Luke chapter 13, the Gospel of Luke chapter 13. I'm going to begin reading in verse 22. I want to share with you an article, not the whole article, just the gist of an article that I read this week. An interview with Brad Pitt was published this week. He was interviewed by a European magazine and asked the question, are you basically happy with your life? Have you found happiness in life? And he said, hmm, yes, I'm on the path I want to be on. Then they said, do you believe in God? And smiling, he said, no, no, no. And they asked, is your soul spiritual? He said, no, no. No, I'm probably 20% atheist and 80% agnostic. I don't think anyone really knows. You either find out or not when you get there. Until then, there's no point thinking about it. And my first thought was, how dumb that is. And I thought, no, there's actually a biblical word for it. Psalms 14.1 says, the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. And I could dissect his answer. For one thing, I don't think you can be 20% atheist and 80% agnostic. An atheist says there is no God. An agnostic says, well, there probably is a God. You just can't know him. So I could argue that. And then the question, the statement, you know, you find out when you get there. Well, my question then would be, well, where is there? And it would be easy to make fun of this guy today, and yet there's a lot of folks that won't say it, but they live the same life that he's living. In fact, I would say it ought to call us as believers to prayer for guys like that. In fact, I pray that God would use even the question that the interviewer asked him to penetrate his heart with the thought, do you really know God? Is it possible to know God? I want to share a passage of Scripture with you where that is the question that is asked and Jesus gives a great answer. Follow along in verse 22 and follow in just the first couple of verses to get us started into this passage. I'm preaching through the book of Luke. And Jesus, it says, was passing through from one city and village to another, teaching and proceeding on his way to Jerusalem. And someone said to him, Lord, are there just a few who are being saved? And then Jesus answered him. Jesus is doing what he said he was going to do back in the fourth chapter of Luke, when he said that the crowd of people that he's been healing and teaching pressed him to stay there. Don't, don't leave. Stay right here. And Jesus says, no, I must continue because it's my mission to preach throughout all the cities. And so that's what he's doing. And so he's been teaching. He's apparently traveling at this point, may have been walking and talking. And someone from the crowd asked the question, are there... Just a few who are being saved. The word few means puny, small in number. Probably a Jew asked this question because there was conflict in Jewish circles. Some Jews believed that there were just a few that were being saved. In fact, just the most righteous would be saved. There were a lot more Jews that believed all Jews are going to be saved. In fact, really, you're all going to go to heaven. Just maybe a few of you that are the worst sinners won't make it, but... We're going to go to heaven. Why? Because we're Jews. And so we ask the question, are there just a few that are being saved? It's kind of like he's asking the question, what are my odds? We interviewed a guy 
just a few weeks ago for a staff position here for next summer. And after the interview, I mean, the interview had just gotten over. He's walking out the door. He turned around and he said, let me just ask you, what are my odds? I'm like, man, we just met you. I don't know what your odds are. <laughs> Let's flip a coin. And yet that's kind of what this guy was saying. I think in his mind he's thinking, you know what? My odds are better if you tell me that there's going to be a lot of people that get into heaven. In fact, I would say that this question about heaven and can I be saved and can I know that I'm saved is the number one question I've gotten asked as a minister. My first church as a youth pastor was in Highland Village, Texas, and I passed out little index cards to all the students there. In fact, my first Sunday as youth pastor in this church, we had two youth. That's a pretty good ratio, you know, one to two, youth pastor to youth students. The next week we had four. So I thought, we are the fastest growing youth ministry in the country. We have doubled in size. There's just four. We typically, after a few weeks, were running about 15 or 16 students, and they'd always ask me, what are we going to talk about at that thing tonight? So I said, we got to come up with a better name than that. So I let them name it. So we, we discussed several names, and after a while, you know what we ended up calling the thing on Sunday night? We called it the thing on Sunday night. At least we made it official. And I passed out index cards and allowed them to ask any question. I said, here's what I'm going to do. You ask the question, then I'll study during the week, and we'll come back, and I'll, from God's Word, try to help answer the question. Now, one of the guys, his name was Doug. Doug was a habitual liar, and I could tell you stories about Doug. I won't. He just, Doug had inferiority complexes, and he would just tell you stories to make you go, wow, Doug, that's hard to believe. And it really was. But Doug's two questions were, first one was, which came first, the chicken or the egg? And then in parentheses he said, I really need to know. I thought, are you staying awake at night wondering that? So we talked about that one week. And then the other one was, in the event of nuclear attack, is it okay to take a cyanide capsule? That was his question. Of course, as a young youth minister, my first thought was, Doug, are you carrying one of those with you? If so, I think I hear the sirens wailing, take it now, you know. Now, that was Doug's question. I got a bunch of other ones. You know what most of the questions were? This, this question, basically in different forms, but it came back to, can I know for sure that I'm going to be saved? Can I know for sure that I'm a child of God? How many are going to be saved? And am I one of them? And so as Jesus is walking and he's ultimately heading to Jerusalem to be put to death. So the question is, are there just a few? Is it just a puny amount? What are my odds? And then I want you to see his answer. His answer begins in verse 23. He said, and he said to them, but then skip to 24. He says, strive to enter through the narrow door. For many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. Once the head of the house gets up and shuts the door, and you begin to stand outside and knock on the door, saying, Lord, open up to us. Then he will answer and say to you, I do not know where you are from. Then you will begin to say, We ate and drank in your presence, and you taught in our streets. And he will say, I tell you, I do not know where you are from. Depart from me, all you evildoers. So the first point is that salvation was questioned, but in this one, we see that a relationship is required. The man asked, it's a voice out of the crowd that asked the question, how many are going to be saved? We don't see Jesus turn and just address this one person. In fact, his answer is plural. He addresses the crowd 
and he uses the word strive to enter through the narrow gate. Now, I know for some of you in here, your strive meter is on wide open all the time anyway. And you think, man, what does that mean? Are we talking about human effort here? Absolutely not. Take it in context of the rest of Scripture. How are we saved? Ephesians 2.8. You're saved by what? Grace. Through works? No, through faith in Jesus Christ. So when he uses the word strive, it's important to know that it's really the word agonize, agony. He looks at him and he says, strive to enter. In fact, it's a word taken right out of the Greek games. The games that will one day become the Olympic games. And he uses a word that you'd use of an athlete that was competing, whether it be in a wrestling match or in a foot race or whatever he or she was competing in. He says, strive to enter through the narrow gate. In fact, Paul put it this way to Timothy. When he's encouraging Timothy in 1 Timothy 6, 12, he says, Fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. Fight the good fight. Strive to enter. And what is our striving? Folks, to come to a place in your life where you recognize that you need a Savior. There will be a struggle that takes place in your life. The struggle is over pride. It's over admitting that I have a need and I can't do this myself. I can't save myself. Every effort we make of me as men or women, every effort we make as human, what does the Bible say? It says it falls short of the glory of God. So he's not saying try harder doing those things. But he's saying really the struggle is going to be this inner struggle of humbling yourselves and recognizing you have a need, and that need is for a Savior. And your struggle is also going to be against the enemy, Satan, who will stand in opposition to the truth. Listen, if striving was all that was required, the Pharisees are shoe-ins to get into heaven. Because that's all they did, man. They, they strived constantly. They worked hard, but they didn't know Jesus. So when he calls out to this answer, and he addresses the crowd. He says, enter through the narrow door. And the image he's given, really, the cities that Jesus is going about had gates around them. Some of them were pretty small cities. Some of the cities in that day would have taken up less ground than you see here at the Garden City Chapel, these white gates, fences. But they would have gates. The typical gate, the public gate, was 16 feet wide. Approximately, okay, this is, don't use this for scientific purposes, this is, approximate, but approximately the width of the, the entrance to this stage up here. The private gates in the city would be about as wide as this aisle is right here. So 16 feet to about 4 feet. And so Jesus is entering, using an imagery when he says to them, and over in Matthew he expounds a little bit and talks about the wide road and the narrow road, the wide gate and the narrow gate. And so he could point over and he say, you know, don't take the public gate, the one that everybody uses, if you're heading in the same direction that everybody's going, you're probably heading the wrong way. Go through the narrow gate. In fact, it's the word stenos that we get the word stenographer from, which means narrow writing. That's what Jesus is saying. Part of the struggle to come to faith in Jesus Christ is it may mean that you have to forsake the crowd. You may have to go against the flow, and that's very uncomfortable. See, it's a lot easier just to kind of fit in and go the way everybody else is going. 
So when Jesus says strive, he's talking about agony. He's talking about an agonizing struggle. And then look what he says. Because many are going to seek to enter. That's future tense. There's going to come a day when they will seek. He says present tense, strive. But if you don't, there's coming a day when many are going to seek to enter. Future tense, seek. And yet they're not going to be able. They're not going to have the power. They're not going to have the force. And he tells this story of this illustration of when the head of the household finally decides it's time for bed. It's dark. I'm shutting the door. He says, once that door is shut, you can stand outside all you want to, knocking on it. He's not going to open the door. In this case, the head of the household is Jesus. And he's giving a warning. The time of invitation is now, present tense. Because there's coming a day when even the narrow gate is going to shut. And there's going to be a lot of people knocking on it. And let me tell you something. The people that knocking on the door, if you did a survey among them, they all believed they were going to get in the door. They just thought they'd do it later. Or they thought they had already done enough. In fact, look at their argument. When Jesus says to them, listen, you're going to knock, and you're even going to say, Lord, open up to us. And Jesus is going to say, I don't know you. I don't know where you're from. Look at their two-point argument. Well, now, wait a minute. We ate and drank in your presence. We shared meals together. We know each other. See, in that culture, to share a meal with somebody indicated intimacy. It indicated at least acquaintance and friendship. So their first argument is, wait a minute. You've you got to know us. We ate together. Don't you remember that? And more than that, you taught in our streets. You taught in our public square. They didn't use the one we hear over in Matthew. They use a third argument in Matthew, and that is, hey, we ministered in your name. Jesus again says, I don't know you. Depart from me, you evildoers. Well, their whole argument is not about relationship with Jesus. It's not about I've trusted you as my Lord and Savior. I've surrendered my life to you. It's simply, hey, we're buddies. We've eaten together. We've drank together. And we've listened to your messages. You know who immediately came to my mind when I read that this week of who would have fit that description? Judas. Judas had walked for three years with Jesus before he betrayed him. He had ate with him, drank with him, and heard him teach in the streets. Here's the sad thing, folks. Look at me. There are people that one day will face God, and God's going to say, why should I let you into my kingdom? Or if God said that. If God asked you, why should I let you into my kingdom? And some of you will say, well, I went to church. I heard your message proclaimed. I read the Bible myself. We shared fellowship, didn't we? And the sad thing is, these aren't my words. These are the words of our Savior who says, there's some that he will look at and say, depart from me, I never knew you. Folks, it's about relationship. It's not about how much you know about God. It's whether God knows you or not. One of my favorite places to go is Augusta, Georgia in the springtime for the Masters. And As a kid growing up, you used to just go and get in for practice rounds. It was pretty cheap and... They didn't have this lottery system they got today where you don't know if you're going to get tickets or not. And I used to go, and I used to love taking people with me, and I could always spot who the golfers were and tell you what their names were. And I remember one time standing on the practice tee, and I'd been telling the guys with me, you know, this one over here, naming names and all that. And there was a tall golfer with a straw hat on that I was supposed to he looked familiar. I knew who he was, but I couldn't remember his name. 
And the guy was my friend said, well, who's that guy right there? And I, I said, I, said I, can't, I can't think of his name. And there's this little about eight-year-old kid standing in front of us looking at me as soon as they said, who is that guy? He was kind of looking at me like buttoning in on our conversation, you know, being nosy. And I was kind of getting aggravated or a little agitated with this kid. I kind of wanted to say, dude, mind your own business, turn around. They asked me again, who's, this, who's the guy with the straw hat on him? Finally, the little kid turned around, and I read his name tag. I can't remember his first name, but his last name was Forsman. And then I realized, oh, that's his father. That's Dan Forsman. And the thought that crossed my mind, you know what? I could have jumped those gallery ropes at Augusta National and run out and said, Dan, how you doing? And I would have been arrested pretty quickly and lost my opportunity to ever return. But his son, what could he have done? He could have walked right under the ropes and gone out and said, Dad. And what would his dad have said? He wouldn't have said, depart from me because I don't know you. (laughs) Now, there's time that children want to do that with their parents. You know, could you drop me off a block from the theater so that nobody knows you're my parents? But folks, as as a father, Dan Forsman wouldn't have said to his son, I don't know you. Why? Because they have a relationship. And what Jesus is saying to these people is, it's not about whether you went through some religious motions or not. It's about, I don't know you. And yeah, we may have eaten together. We may have, you may have heard me teach. But I don't know you. Then the last thing Jesus says, he comes to this point then of judgment, verse 28 through 30. He said, in that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. When you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God but yourselves being thrown out and they will come from east and west, from north and south and will recline at the table in the kingdom of God. And behold, some who are last will be first and some are first who will be last. Jesus is hitting them right between the eyes to say, you need to to wake up. You need to seek me while I can be found. I'm right here. The invitation's open today for you. Because he says there's coming a day when the door is shut. Have you ever faced a shut door? Have you ever run through an airport trying to make a flight? Maybe a connection in a big airport. And you get there and the door is shut and you're running up. I've got to get on that plane. And you see the plane taking off. Have you ever stood at a gate with a confirmed seat and knew they're going to start boarding in just a few minutes? That's a comforting thought to know I've got a ticket i got a confirmed seat on that airplane. They're going to call for my row in just a few minutes. But have you ever watched somebody that was going standby? They pace back and forth. <laughs> they come up to the counter constantly. Hey, where am I on the list? Folks, don't, don't leave here today on standby. You can leave here today knowing beyond any shadow of a doubt that if you see God tomorrow, He will say, welcome. Jesus says, there's a place where there will be wailing, weeping, lamentation, crying out loud. And there will be gnashing of teeth, literally a grating of teeth. And some of you who are standing here today, he says, you're even going to look and you're going to see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. You're going to see some of the prophets. And you're going to think, I get in because I'm related to them. I'm a Jew. And Jesus says, no, 
But there's going to be some that are going to come. He names every direction you can think of, from the east and the west and the north and the south, which to the Jew would have meant, wait a minute, you mean the Gentiles are going to get in? I mean, it's bad enough for him to say, you, just because of your birthright as a Jew, don't get in. But there's going to be some who weren't even born Jews who were Gentiles who are going to come from every direction of the compass. Those strivers, the ones that agonized and entered the narrow gate, one day are going to sit at a banquet table. Some of you are asking the question my secretary asked me one time. One day, what kind of food are we going to have in heaven? I said, well, I don't know. I mean, there's, I know there's going to be the wedding feast of the Lamb. And she looked really sad. And I said, what's wrong? She said, my kids don't like lamb. I was like, no, that's not. Jesus is the lamb. I don't know what the food's going to be. But we're going to recline at the table. So my word for you this morning is, make sure that you know. And your question may be, well, how can I know? Let me just share a few verses with you in closing. John, when he wrote 1 John in chapter 5, verse 13, said this. He said, I have written these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know you have eternal life. Not hope so, not think so, but know. You can know today that you have eternal life. I read a newspaper article where they had eight people interviewed, one of those man-on-the-street interviews, and they asked the question, are you going to heaven? Well, as a preacher, I'm really interested in the question. I was more interested in the answers. Not one single person out of the eight, and I don't know how many people they interviewed, they had eight in the paper, not one person said yes. I thought, wow. What surprised me more was not one person said no. You know what they said? They said, well, I hope so. One person said, I got a 50-50 chance. I thought, wow, bless your heart. What does that mean? You're going to get to heaven and there's this big coin? Let's just ask the coin toss, 50-50. Take your chances. No. You can know beyond any shadow of a doubt that you're a child of God. Know this, first of all, that Jesus is the way. Jesus said to his disciples, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. In John 10, he said, I'm the door. If anyone enters through me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. He's also the only name. Acts 4.12, there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which you must be saved. So what do you have to do? What's the striving today? The striving is the agony of acknowledging that you're heading the wrong direction, that you're walking away from God, that apart from Him, you're lost and hopeless. In fact, you're heading for a place where there's going to be wailing and gnashing of teeth. And today what God would ask you to do is to turn and to trust Him. To understand that you have nothing in yourself that, that warrants or earns you salvation. But you come back to a Savior who loves you and who has died on a cross so that you could know God. Folks, you can do that today. Let's pray together. Jesus, I thank you for how simple, how clear the gospel is. And Lord, I pray that I have not muddied the water. Lord, I pray that clearly today you would penetrate hearts with your truth. God, I pray that you'd reveal to us today where we stand with you. 
God, if there's someone here that does not know you, God, I pray today would be a day they pray a simple prayer to say, Jesus, I know that I'm a sinner. And today I ask you to forgive me of my sins and to be my Lord and my Savior. And Father, I pray today if there's someone that has done that, that they tell somebody. Or that either a leader in their group or someone from their church or someone could help plug them into a church where they could grow and enjoy the fellowship of other believers and learn what it really means to be a follower of Christ and how they could grow to maturity. So God, that is my prayer. Thank you for the offer of eternal life. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.